Hello, dear listeners. Today we have something a little different for you all. We are recording a series on the history of pandemics on this podcast. They won't be consecutive episodes, but rather peppered into our regularly scheduled programming. It's an experiment of sorts, a journey born out of our research for this podcast and all sorts of topics we've touched on from the history of germ theory to vaccinations to the birth of the scientific method. We're both immensely curious students of history and science, so for us, it's a natural fit to delve into the pandemics of the past. It just so happens we're fortunate enough to have a brilliant and thoughtful guide to take us on this journey. His name is Daniel Schmidt, and he's an educator in Bournemouth, England. Tassie and I met Daniel when we were all teenagers, before any of us knew what we wanted to do with our lives, but there were a few things we all had in common. Our friendship was based on a shared deep love of people and a desire to travel and learn about any corner of this big blue planet we could get our hands on. I went on to study communications and art, Tassie linguistics, and Dan studied to be an educator of history. One thing stayed the same. We all share a mutual respect for each other, and I can only speak for myself, but I learned something from every conversation I have with each of them. One thing we especially want to talk about as we learn about pandemics of the past are the reactions of the people who were living through these times. We can certainly sympathize with their fear, their desperation to understand, and their desire to bring order where they found only uncertainty. Who knows, you might see yourself or your neighbors in these stories. At any rate, we hope you enjoy all of Dan's many hours of research and hard work. We're grateful to him for lending us his voice for this History of Pandemics series of episodes. Welcome to the From Quarantine podcast, a weekly dose of dry humor from two Americans living in the heart of Europe. Hosted by January Newbanks and Tassie Gibson. Hello, hello. Hi. I have two people with me tonight. Yay. Tassie, as always, and then Daniel's back. Hi, ladies. I'm excited. So, Dan, you did uh, episode zero with us, talking about kind of the history of pandemics, what's happening, right? That the world has been going through this for a long time. This is not the first one. You set us up for this amazing history podcast. Um, and this is going to be the first, episode one. Uh, Absolutely. I cannot wait to get into it. Yes. So talk to us about episode one. We're going to talk about the Middle Ages. Give us in uh, a nutshell what we're looking at in the Middle Ages. Well, okay. So when you think about the Middle Ages, and there's a lot of discourse and, and, and debate over what it is, but I'm going to make it pretty simple. All right, so you have the ancient world, which is Greece, Rome, and Egypt in reverse. Egypt, Greece, and Rome, right? That lasts up until um, the time period of the Roman Empire, which falls around the year 500. Uh, so from 500 to 1500, you have this period of time we call the Middle Ages. And then after 500, you have the Renaissance, and that continues on into the modern world. So this, in the middle of the time, so it's 500 AD to 1500 AD. Generally, people will agree it's the Middle Ages. So we're going to start there. And yeah, that's where we begin our journey. Awesome. So Jan, you want to lead us in? What are some of the burning questions you have about the Black Death? So I think that in general, 
we kind of have an idea of what the Middle Ages is like, but probably it is tainted um, by just Hollywood, you know, visions or depictions of what the Middle Ages was like. So where in the course of human history are we actually starting our journey? Okay, so we're starting in, um, well, 1348, but I'm gonna go back a little bit to the 11th and 12th century uh, when we actually start our story. But let me talk about the Middle Ages just a bit. So one kind of little uh, bit of, of warning, uh, and I'm gonna use a quote from a very um, prestigious historian by the name of Barbara Tuckman. Um, she says, a greater hazard built into the very nature of recorded history is overload of the negative. Uh, and a disproportionate Ooh, survival like of the bad side. She says, mm. of evil, misery, contention, harm. In history, this is the exact same as a newspaper. The normal does not make news. So when you talk about the Middle Ages, you're gonna get a lot of bad record stuff. And you think that this is just a cacophony of, of dire misery and travail. And it's not like that. That's just gets, what gets written down. Just like if you took all the newspapers and reconstructed life today from the newspapers, you'd think these people are um, non-stop miserable when that's really not the case. So um, mm -hmm. keep that in mind as we talk about all this stuff. It will get very miserable. There will be abject <laughs> pain and suffering on nuclear levels, but that's not what life was all like. Um, so when we talk about the Black Death, it's, or I'm sorry, the Middle Ages itself, uh, there's a lot of myths. And I think, you know, Monty Python and the Search of the Holy Grail really played on those myths. You see all of the, the peasants with like dirty faces. And, mm -hmm. Oh my just... gosh. And, the, and them putting the dead bodies on the cart. They're yeah. not dead I, yet. I think, I think they're, they were really <laughs> hamming it up. And, you know, people were generally, the one myth is you always see people just covered in filth. And that wasn't the case. People liked to bathe in rivers when they had access to it. They, they kept their houses clean, um, you know, that sort of right, because it was kind of a later, like Edwardian, Victorian thing. Yeah, it was bathing, very much right? in the Middle Ages were basically an Elizabethan thing, where where they thought that bathing would remove your natural oils that protect you and keep you healthy. So they just bathed a couple times a year. Sometimes, generally, the lower classes didn't abide by those rules at all, and huh. even rules in marriage and wife selling and and, and like you'd have kind of. Um, almost like auctions where you could swap marriage and stuff like that. So a lot of the rules we associate with people's behavior, the lower classes and towns and villages kind of did their own thing within reason. Um, so yeah, the myths of, of dirt everywhere and persistent warfare and a lot of this stuff is not really true. Um, they are very much an alien species. Like if you talk to them, their worldview would be unrecognizable in many ways, but in many ways, very, very human. Um, so, let me talk a little bit about religion. So as we know, Middle Ages, you know, was uniquely Catholic, at least the, the before the advent of the Reformation. Um, and this was, this is kind of the hardest thing for us to get our minds around, so much so that historians go back into history and, you know, like Marxist historians will try to find an economic argument for everything, that everything has to do with money. And we're seeing new historians kind of have to go back to some of the original interpretations that actually know religion did drive people's lives. Like, we don't want to believe that, but this is, you know, from, from birth to marriage to death to your weekly um, That makes perfect practice. sense because, I mean, yeah. you live in the UK, you know better than we do, but that whole parish system, like seeing that, how that really interacted, that you had your parish where you lived, died, born. And that was, and that was the center of your community, of entertainment, yeah. of social times. 
And it was, yeah, it, it was really something that pervaded your worldview. And, and until humanism kind of gets born in the 16th century, people really ascribe to this life is temporary. It's about the next life. Suffering is to be expected. Um, mm -hmm. And that this was a, a step to the next direction. And um, death was kind of like something that people would be used to at this point in time. Like it would be very much a part of like, I mean, you know, we didn't have antibiotics we didn't have like viral treatments yeah absolutely you know things like yeah. that so like death would be and accidents and things like that death would be very much be, it, would be, it would be tragic but not surprising right and yes you by the time you were 10 you would have lost a few brothers and sisters maybe a parent um, right yeah. so the focus on the afterlife makes sense and that's in that it does it was a source of yeah. comfort really so but right. these people that we'll be talking about we have to imagine that there were that they are true believers in their religion that they feared hell and that um a, a large proportion of their life was consumed with what was going to be happening next mm -hmm. um yeah so in, in the church the church's structure in the middle ages is infused to kind of every level of life whether it's government uh whether it's uh economic whether it's uh food rituals um mm -hmm. i think i think up until uh henry the eighth dissolved the monasteries and brought the Catholic or brought England out of the Catholic Church. I think the Catholic Church owns something like 35% of the land. I mean, wow. you're talking, you're talking making it rain with mad stacks. Like these guys are rich beyond all comprehension. Um, so yeah, you, you have kind of the, the church and the state merged together in some form. Um, yeah, but you know, you find surprising things. It's, it's, it's too simple to just say there was the church, it controlled everything. And that's how everything was. The earthly rulers would sometimes push back against the church. And you have funny situations like in 1303, the, the, the king of France actually abducted the Pope and beat the living daylights <laughs> out of him. He died a month later. Oh my God. His own kind of popal papal state in Avignon in France. So he had two popes. And then yeah, wasn't this, there was the Pope and the anti-Pope. This was like yes, that time. Yes, yeah. yes. And then and, and by 1410, you actually had three popes. <laughs> yeah so that's one you have kind of the standard but things happen and people are, are you know always kind of power hungry um yeah so when you think of the middle ages a helpful kind of guide is the three estates so, so those who fight so those are the nobles and the uh the knights that's about five percent of the population um so the king didn't have an army he had nobles that that he gave tribute to and they paid homage to him uh, those who pray, so the entire clerical organization, all of the uh, bishops and archbishops and priests and monks and nuns, that's about another 5%, and those who work, the remaining 90% uh, on the bottom living just above the poverty line. So, uh, and the Black Death hits all of them. Um, sometimes even the those who pray, the second estate, uh, a little bit harder, um, because they're in contact with people and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. you have 90% of the people just working, but you have in the last hundred years or so leading up to the Black Death, a merchant class that is arising and nobody knows what to make of these guys. They are unusually wealthy. They're coming out of the kind of peasant class or in between and they're dressing and eating and living in places that only the aristocrats, no one really knows how to deal with them, but they are a very mobile, itinerant and a canny class of people that are creating almost like a middle class. 
So um, a few other things about the Middle Ages. Um, obviously, people know that, or most people should know that uh, literacy rates, illiteracy rates, those who cannot read, are 95 to 98%, all right? Wow. Almost, high, if you wanted someone who could read and write at a decent level, you would hire them. Um, I've always heard that, you know, if, if you want to think about a literate or someone who's literate, think about how many rocket scientists or brain surgeons you would know and how you would react to a brain surgeon if you met them. That's, that's mm -hmm. someone who could read and write. Uh, they would be hired. It was a profession. Um, if you went back in a time machine to the Middle Ages and offered them uh, the gift of reading and writing, most people would be like, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody reads books. There's no way to mass produce books. And if you gave someone a book, it would be like, maybe I can pawn this off, but who's going to buy it? Most kings couldn't read. Um, the nun, or I'm sorry, the monks could because they would translate books. Some scholars and lawyers always could, but most people couldn't. And that didn't mean, though, that people were stupid. Mm -hmm. They were ignorant about the wider world around them. But the sure. way I like to think about someone in the Middle Ages is they would have an encyclopedic knowledge of the flora and fauna around them. Mm -hmm. uh, dates and growing seasons, a lot of them memorized in different parts of the world, and I'm talking about pre-literate societies, uh, the star charts that can guide themselves for hundreds of miles. Uh, these people would be dynamic and funny and interesting and emotional and poetic. Um, they would have very diverse, colorful lives, but they just wouldn't have the knowledge that we have. I think someone said that a typical Middle Ages person from a village would have as much raw knowledge as maybe the, the broadsheet of a newspaper on both sides. Like that's how much they would know about the wider world, um, <laughs> but about their local communities and about everyone else in the community. Um, yeah, a very, very solid understanding. Well, that makes sense because this is like the, the Chaucer era, right? So you have those mm -hmm. really funny, dirty, uh, oh, yeah. like verbal stories, the, the, the people, yeah, the jesters, the entertainers, like that would have been their world, right? Absolutely, yeah. This is, this is not long after Chaucer. And yeah, very, very body jokes, uh, downright dirty adult humor was very common. People who could write oftentimes inserted exaggeration and humor into what they were writing to get an emotional appeal out of their audience. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Um, but we have a very agrarian society. And so something happens in the Middle Ages. By the way, agrarian means farming, sorry. <laughs> we have something happening in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, called the uh, medieval climate anomaly or a warming season. So that is a period of time from about 1100 to about 1300 where things warm up in a, in a gradual way. And that leads to a population explosion because of a food surplus and a few other reasons. So Europe yeah. goes from about 75 million to 150 million in 200 years. And wow. cities swell. Yeah, you had, you had, like during the Roman Empire, you had large cities, I think Rome was about a million. And that disappears during most of the Middle Ages. Um, that disappears around the year 500. And we start to see that in the high Middle Ages, not, not that big, because they don't have this, they, they couldn't do the things the Romans did. They couldn't do the sanitation and the water and the logistics. But you, you have this period of time where this MCA, this medieval climate anomaly, where cities start to grow um, and then that means that once you have a doubling, or in England's case, I think England tripled in 200 years its population. That, that's wow. amazing. Um, you have all of the arable land gets, turns into farming to feed everyone, and so people start heading to cities. So you start to see almost like a very small industrial revolution. 
So that's what's happening prior to the Black Death. Um, so had there been, um, I mean, obviously there have been other pandemics before this, but had there been anything on this scale, like, can you, can you take us through, um, like the epidemics that were happening, what a pandemic would have looked like before this? Yeah, were I mean, they they're, familiar they're, with plague? The last real pandemic, Tassie, was the Justinian plague, plague of Justinian 800 years earlier. Um, 800 years. 800 years. 541. uh, Yesenia Pestis, the Black Death, came through Same germ. Um, Same germ, same possible route, although they think it came from Egypt. Um, The rats love love them some grain. Uh, Came through and wiped out about, I mean, 25 to 50 million. All the chroniclers say the same thing. This is the end of the human race. Uh, And that was with a much lower worldwide population at the time. It was... Mm -hmm catastrophic. So yeah, 800 years earlier. So really, we don't have, there's not a ton of epidemics and virtually no pandemics leading up. You would have some disease outbreaks, we think, but none of the, none of the ones that we would associate with like smallpox and measles. Not Was it because scale. people weren't moving? Like there wasn't the movement of people or was it were isolated in communities and therefore they kind of died out in the community before they were transferred? Or, yeah, I, uh, to be honest, I don't know, but it might be that the during the Middle Ages, so 500 to 1500, when when communica- worldwide networking kind of collapsed, you didn't have any large mm-hmm. empire controlling all of it for enough time. You had smaller empires in between uh, that you didn't have people traveling from the edge of China across the Silk Road, trading with people in the Black Sea, and those and other people taking goods all the way to Norway. Right, because uh, that was really like a uniquely Roman like ancient Roman situation. Yeah. yeah, in the sense that the world was, basically the Black Sea was connected to um, the English Channel. You know, okay. that, that was all within the domain of the Roman Empire. So traders who were going down the Silk Road through Central Asia could deliver their goods. And there was a lot of traffic. Well, that traffic came roaring back during this kind of 200 year period from 1100 to 1300. So yeah, with an interconnected world, you have interconnected problems one of them being mm-hmm. a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at, uh, and you said we can think of them as they were very different than us, but also they were similar to us. They hadn't really experienced this like mass uh, sickness. Um, we always hear the thing of like they had 10 kids and eight died and like you lived until you were 30 and then your teeth fell out. Like That's what? right. You just dropped it. You're like, you're, watching, you're looking at your sundial and you turned 40 and you just dropped it. <laughs> right. So what, what was actually happening? Were people, I mean, yeah, that, that sounds, that sounds dire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you just gotta, you gotta think it's hard because there is so much tragedy, but you have to think about these people living fairly normal lives. But, um, so in short, life, average life expectancy was 35, 40-ish, but that means that infant mortality was really high and then accidents were common, all right? So most, I think most people would probably live, you took the most people uh, between 50 and 60, but if you saw someone who was 70 or 80, you wouldn't freak out and be like, how do you live double life? Uh, <laughs> you would, yeah, you, you would say, they, you would probably be like, oh yeah, they, they got lucky, but uh, because nutrition was poor, even maintain your basic caloric needs it was really really tough um it lowers the life expectancy but the big thing is infant mortality so 30 to 50 percent 
of babies would die within their first two years of life. Uh, wow. So much so that some of the records seem to indicate that people didn't name their kids till they hit a certain age. And if they did, they would name them the same name. So you'd have Rebecca one, two, and then three would live. Um, yeah. I was just watching a documentary. It was about ancient Rome, but this came up, this idea of like infant mortality and that parents were losing so many children. And the, the question that the presenter put to the person she was interviewing was, did they feel it as strongly as we would feel it? Because if you imagine that you have two kids and one of them dies, that's, that's intense. If you have 10 kids and, um, and apparently, and he referenced the Middle Ages in the interview, that throughout all of human history that, there, that it was a shared loss because your neighbors would have had that loss, your parents would have had that Absolutely. loss, like everyone around you would have had that loss, but they really mourned. Like there's strong evidence that they um, remembered those children. Absolutely, though, yeah. And as the only parent on this uh, panel here, it doesn't matter if you have one child or 20 children, you are bonded to that child, you carry that child. That's yeah. a huge, yeah. traumatic it, loss. It makes being a medieval historian really interesting, but also very difficult. If you're a Roman historian, you can go back and actually find gravestones with full Latin text with you know 200 characters yeah. written out. And these are written out to babies, wives, dogs. Uh, I read one the other day where a guy waxed eloquent about his dog for like 20 lines about how they were the best beast ever. Yeah, I love the people, Roman headstones. Yeah, you go back 2,000 years, people will have these deep emotional lives, but they're also trained not to show them sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on what culture you're in, yeah. um, at what time, they could be really, you know, very vivid. But I do want to address something you said, Tassie, uh, to clarify that there are, what they don't have is reoccurring pandemics or huge epidemics at this time, but they do have is famine, right? So if there's an unusually oh, okay. hot, hot growing season or a wet growing season and all the wheat dies, you have massive famines. And that happened in, um, there's something called the Great Famine across Europe from 1315 to 22. So approximately 30 years before the Black Death, and millions died in that famine. Wow. Uh, and then you had something even more serious from 1319 to 20. So again, about 30 years before the Black Death, you had a bovine disease, a cattle disease that swept through all of Northern Europe, killing uh, a great percentage of the cows. And if you think about, if you take one thing out of the food chain, everything collapses. And cows are a big part of the food chain in Europe. So yeah. obviously their meat and their milk. Uh, their manure gets used for the soil. Oh, wow, yeah. And, and that, and that what, uh, what historians uh, um, postulate is that, that the removal, that, that bovine disease, pestilence, um, led to malnutrition for several generations that were never able to recover from that. Mm -hmm. So as much as pandemics weren't a thing, famine was a huge thing, and the malnourishment of the people in 1347, which is where our story starts, um, probably added to uh, their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes them, I like the word immunocompromised. So these are immunocompromised adults that mm -hmm. got ravaged by this disease that are coming off of a large famine and a large bovine uh, disease. Mm -hmm. So for the average person, what would their day look like? Um, an average person in the Middle Ages, wow, depends on what region you're talking about. So I'm just gonna have to general, generalize a little bit. So sure. most people would have, like I said, lived probably to 40 or 50, but maybe even a little later, or a lot of them died before the age of two. Uh, but again, very religious, 
uh, marry very young and start having children probably by the age of 15, maybe even younger, and you inherited your father's work. Um, little social mobility. If you were born poor, I th you pretty much you died poor. Almost nobody, except maybe a few merchants, left their station. Um, and your knowledge of your society and the greater world would be usually within 20, 30 miles of your village or town. You never really traveled that far. Now, all that saying, people during this time were traveling. We have accounts of people that went from England through Europe all the way to Jerusalem several times and back. You, mm -hmm. Some people did travel the world James Bond style with multiple passports. Um, but most people's experience wasn't like that. Sure. Um, but again, I just want to always reiterate in the midst of the tragedy, these are very different people to us, but I think very much the same. Um, but keep in mind, no privacy in this world. You, everyone would, you didn't have, you had an internal life, but your external life, you probably shared your, your bed or your house with servants or other people in the community, obviously with stock animals and farm animals, mm -hmm. uh, your children, um, that this was not a world where you had a distinct kind of private life on the outside, so. Can um, I plug Lucy Worsley's documentary about the history of the home? Um, I've sent it to you before, Jan. I know yeah. that you've watched parts oh, send of it. it to me. Um, oh my gosh, it's so good because she really does good. four parts the bedroom, the bathroom, the kitchen, and the living room. And she starts in the Middle Ages for each of them. It was the development of the home. And she talks about that. Like, and she shows people really living. Um, and one of the most interesting things was a why we call it um, the boardroom and the, the chair is because you had a board that was your table and the head of the home sat in the only chair in the house. Um, and that has lingered in our, in our yeah. culture. Yeah, well, if you think about it, you know, 99% uh, of people who've ever lived have learned about sex from watching and hearing it because you just did not have distinct rooms. You, you watched your parents yeah. and that was it. That was, your, that was your indoctrination into that world. Indoctrination. <laughs> you, you, think, you think your sex talk was awkward. It wasn't awkward. Most human beings ever lived. Uh, I wonder if they narrated as they went along. Uh. No. No, let's not talk about that. Uh, it was interesting. When I was visiting Venice um, with my sister, we actually stayed off the, the main Venice island. We stayed on an island across... Um, the little channel there and um, it was full of locals that actually worked in Venice and uh, the Airbnb host who was showing us our flat um, and like the windows that like faced each other so um, you could like wake up and say hello to your neighbor in the morning like really? four feet away <laughs> um, she was saying that there's no word for privacy in the Italian language that's like native to the Italian language. Um, that like they use, they adopted words from like English or French. Yeah, this is a lot we can talk about there, but let's move on. So <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot I would love to say about it. So. so Black Death shows up on the scene. Like you said, there's been this famine, there's been this pestilence. Um, we all have heard the story of rats, that the little rats came on the ship and then they got off the ship and then they ate all the humans with their fleas. Uh, is that true? 
so yeah, um, well, there's a little bit of debate over like, not very much of a debate. So the story is Yersinia Pestis or Yersinia Pestis, which is named after one of Pasteur's disciples uh, who kind of isolated it and discovered it. Um, is, is actually the cause of the Black Death, but there's enough holes in the, it's really the transportation swiftness. So it quickly goes from China through the Mongols to uh, what would be now Ukraine, uh, the Port of Kaffa, into Italy, Constantinople, and the rest of Europe very, very quickly. And that doesn't really fit right with what we know about how rats travel and even the, you know, the, the transportation routes. But I'm just gonna say this, we are more, like the, we've actually genome sequenced bodies from the Plague of Justinian and the Black Death and found Yusinia pestis there. So it's pretty much a non-issue, but some people argue for it's a hemorrhagic fever or it's maybe anthrax, but let's leave that debate behind. So yeah, it is effectively, the main transportation route is um, from rats and the flea, it's in the blood of the rat, the fleas bite the rat and then bite humans. Now, there's a lot of science that's gone into the, the research in the last 20 years and looked at different weather patterns. So a lot of this is connected to weather. So when it warms up, rat populations do certain things, flea populations do certain things. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it basically spread from um, China uh, in the 18, I'm sorry, in the 1320s, it, it ravaged China. We're talking about 20 million dead and wow. eventually slowly made its way to those interconnected ports. So the Mongols uh, were at war with the Genoese. The Genoese had a trading port in a place called Caffa, C-A-F-F-A. They besieged it, it got transferred to the Genoese merchants who rushed back to Genoa, but then also stopped off at Constantinople and eventually it hit Sicily. And once it hits these network hubs, it explodes. So there's not several waves as much as there's 50 little pinpricks all over Europe. So mm -hmm. one in Egypt, one in Greece, one in Sicily, um, one in Sardinia, one everywhere else, one in France, and then it just propels itself at an accelerated rate so um, can can i ask a stupid question because um, as i was looking at this and i thought about this before but i didn't really find a definite answer so i get that fleas are on the rats and then the fleas bite the humans but was it also human to human spread or was it always a flea because right, so I, it, that wasn't clear to me yeah so this is a good time to go over the three different types of plagues so the one that everyone's familiar with is bubonic. And by the way, the Black Death has, the black has nothing to do with the bubos or the under the skin bleeding. It was a 17th century term that just referred to the horror of it. Uh -huh. So it was a much later term. So let's go over bubonic. So bubonic is the fleas on rats one. And so this, this disease is a zoonotic disease. It's in the blood of a rat and it becomes virulent to humans. Now this is going to blow. You ready to have your minds blown? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're ready to throw up in your mouth a bit. Of yes. Right. When a flea bites a rat, the blood goes into a kind of a proto stomach and then it goes into its stomach. It's like a valve, a waiting area, and then it gets in the stomach and it gets the nutrition. Okay. When a flea bites a rat that is infected, it goes into this uh, what's called a proventriculus and it, it's blocked. It can't get into its stomach. So it's holding this, this poison blood in its mouth, but it can't get in. And the uh, flea gets, as you know, whenever you're denied food, you go into a rage and you start breaking stuff. No, the, feet, the flea gets hungry and starts biting everything it, it, it can and, it, and bites can. humans. But then it's the flea's body in this proto-stomach proto it has before its real stomach ejects 
the blood in out of it because the diseased blood can't get into its stomach. So it actually so you're actually getting vomit. infected by rat vomit. I mean flea vomit. By flea vomit, yeah. But the flea, <laughs> the, the blood is actually injected into you. It's not just an accident. It's almost yeah. So they're biting everything and injecting all of this poison blood into you. So that, that is, whole science area of like how yeah. um, viruses and bacteria can affect the host and make them go mentally nuts absolutely. is fascinating to me. No yeah. time on this podcast to talk about it, but just that idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Zombie. Amazing. zombie. Yeah. The zombie ants. Oh God. Yeah. This, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how epidemiologists look at this, but it's almost as if the disease was sentient. It said, I'm going to get into a flea. I'm going to block its stomach off and then make it vomit everywhere and bite everything like crazy because it's in a rage. Um, but let me talk about rats a bit. So uh, ladies, um, how many babies do you think a rat can have in a year, a female rat? Oh my gosh, they're probably like rabbits. I don't know. I don't know, it's like five, to, five to 10 per litter, right? So, and then they can breed. I know this from guinea pigs. They can breed, um, <laughs> I think like, I Once can't remember. Month? Like okay, we're, we're, talking, we're talking up to 200 a year. So 150, <gasps> 200 babies a year because they reach sexual maturity within yeah, four, to four to five weeks. weeks. That's yeah, insane. So, so two rats can actually produce, if they have babies, as babies have babies, you're looking at 1,200 in a year. Yeah. yeah. One breeding pair in a couple years can produce, if all the conditions were optimal, they had optimal food, there were no uh, pests, um, you're talking 482 and a half million. Oh my god! In a couple of years, <laughs> it's like the rice there. on the chessboard. You know that, yeah. that problem. Oh. Exactly. So when you're thinking about a host that is going to transmit fleas all around the world, rats. You know, two rats can produce in a couple of years potentially 500 million offspring. Um, you're looking at something that is, yeah, that that is that is uh, really really well suited to, to transposing this. Um, so much rats are so good at having babies. They actually develop rat birth control. So special what? chemicals that will go in and you can spray <laughs> areas and will destroy their ovaries. This is how much of a problem it is. And the thing that keeps were so common in everyday life that people never talked about them. They're very, basically no written accounts saying, Oh, this, this damn rat. It was just, it's like, you wouldn't talk about, um, I'm trying to think of something else that's a pest, but, um, there, there are things that, you know, just are so common to us that we don't actually discuss. We just accept them. Rats. Right. Mosquitoes. How many people write an email about mosquitoes? Yeah. Probably <laughs> mosquitoes nobody. So no, you just deal with it. So that's the bubonic plague. Um, the death rate is about 80%. Um, there's a naturally people who are, we think are immune to it, 10 to 20%, and they've drawn connections with people that are immune to HIV, and they think there's a direct link there. Uh -huh. Enough to say that they can't prove it, but there's strong correlation evidence. That's um, interesting. And yeah, you die in about seven days. So the symptoms of the bubonic plague include swellings underneath the armpit, groin, and neck. Uh, when you, uh, you develop these large buboes that are about the size of an egg, maybe an apple, and your lymph nodes basically get swollen. And um, yeah, so it's buboes, it's fever, diarrhea, vomiting, and then it gets into your nervous system and you have epileptic fits. So how many people can survive this in general? Like, I mean, based on what we know, Two out of 10, it's an 80% mortality rate. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, of that. But they have different types. So the plague of Justinian might have been even more virulent. The, the, the Black Death comes back in 1850, so 150 years ago, and it's probably a little bit less, but still very virulent. Um, 
you know, these things mutate and a lot of times they, they mutate to get less lethal. Mm -hmm. So that's bubonic. Pneumonic, as the word kind of indicates, pneumo meaning air, is when the Black Death, so Yersinia pestis would get inside you, but get into your lungs and would basically liquefy your lungs and you would drown in your own blood. That was passable Lovely. from human to human. And that killed you in about two days. It's very much yeah. like an Ebola type hemorrhage. That was like airborne, right? That was an airborne version. So yeah. we, we see, I mean, we have a, written accounts and we kind of can work out that there's uh, two types. Uh, but then there's a third type when it would get into your blood. It's called septicemic. And septicemic was the worst, but it would kill you the fastest. So it's probably the one you want if you get to choose. I was like, <laughs> I'll have the septicemic, please. Um, On the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Check this out. It causes almost near instant blood clots as it starts to form, and your extremities don't get any blood. Oh my god! Therefore, it's like you start to see necrosis very, very quickly, and your 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 limbs start rotting on on you, or your your digits and your toes and stuff like that. So, yes, Fun. pneumonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. But <laughs> as far as we understand, pneumonic is the only one that could be transferred from person to person. Okay. Um, Never have I been more happy to live in the year 2020. And 2020 absolutely. is a bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Cassia, you've just released a pestilence based on those words of confidence. <laughs> Something is echoed out to the eons. It's going to come back. Universe, we've had enough. <laughs> Mercy. <laughs> okay, so Dan, um, what did people know? Did they know, like, did they hear that something's rumbling in Italy? Was it like us with China, like watching CNN? Like, <laughs> what, what, what did they, what did they know? Did and like, who would know? They, un unfortunately, yeah, they were, who? unfortunately, they were told it goes away in April. So they just, they <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, they, and added to the horror of all this, they knew exactly that it was coming. I mean, the, oh, the original okay. kind of, trade ports in Italy when this first struck in 1347, they didn't really know. They just started seeing people drop dead. There were some ships that arrived in Italy with nearly everyone dead, but there's this amazing story of a ship that lands in Norway and it's a ghost ship, everyone's dead. And I'm sure there's a lot of other unwritten accounts of just ships arriving with everyone wow. dead or near dead. Um, but yeah, people, once it hit Italy, everyone in, in England, so kind of the last stop, it goes up through Italy to France, and then into England, then into Scotland and Ireland, uh, they knew. They had a six to eight month warning advance. And mm -hmm. yeah, they, they, they kind of were aware that this thing was lumbering um, and that it was going to be bad. But of course, no way to, to kind of, uh, how, how do you deal with this? Right. So yeah. So were there any precautions taken? Did they... Did they say it's happening in Italy because the Italians are lazy or, you know, like all well, yeah. I mean, every prejudices. We'll, we'll do this on every episode. Every disease gets labeled with some sort of name. Uh, so, and we do this today and it's not necessarily in bad taste. So MERS was Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Um, syphilis was the French disease, um, rightly so. And this one was, everyone blamed the Genoese because they kind of brought it from the Ukraine with their trading ports after the Mongols gave it to them. So they blamed on the what, Yeah, I was going to say, what about the Mongols? Like, I know there's, like, rumors of them, like, launching dead bodies in, like, you know, the first iterations of... Yes, uh, so that's the, the Siege of Kaffa. Uh, it's at 1345. And, yeah, they, they, they did biological warfare because they were falling ill with it. And while they were pulling out, because they their second siege wasn't successful, they did the dead bodies. It would have been passed anyways. 
that's a nice story and it's horrific, but it's, it, it's not what spread the plague because dead bodies, he, dead human bodies don't really spread the plague mm-hmm. in the way that we, we, if the plague is what we think it is, Yersinia pestis, it's not, that's not really going to spread as well as throwing 10 rats over the wall. That would, that would kill, you know, everybody. Um, so yeah, they knew it was coming and they slowly waited for it. Mm. Okay. Yeah, because so, I mean, at this point, you wouldn't have like very much knowledge about like diseases and how to prevent them. So, like, what what could you do? Well, that gets us into what did they blame it on? So, this this strap in because this is an interesting juxtaposition of so all the things I'm going to bring up. Most people believed a lot of it at the same time, and it doesn't all fit in our brain like if then either or empirical science. Right. Uh, so, number one. Ladies, astrology was pervasive throughout the Middle Ages, uh, especially at the upper levels. They really, really liked it. So looking at the stars and looking for meaning and... Um, we know that here because Charles Bridge, uh, King Charles, based it on numerology. So it was, it yeah. was year one, three, five, seven at, I don't know, seven o'clock now, I don't remember, but the exact time so that the numbers went one, three, five, seven, seven, five, three, one. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So astrology was big in medicine and it was big and it really nicely into Christianity. Although some priests really hated it, but basically in 1347, so the year before the black death. Okay. No, I think it's 1345. Sorry. Um, uh, there was a conjunction of, of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. So they all lined up. Everyone noticed it and said, something's going to happen. And when the Black Death broke out, so the world begins to end a couple years later, everyone's like, there you go. We have a celestial event and that is happening here. And they really saw that, which again, I don't blame them. Like you see something extraordinary. Yeah. That happens just like in six, in the, the, when the Black Death comes back to England, it comes back a bunch. But when it comes back in 1665, there's a big comet people associate with that. People are um, still doing that today. They do it <laughs> <Yeah>. today. And, <laughs> but it's interesting because, like, I mean, at this point in time, you would have believed that disease was spread from contamination of the air, correct? So, and that, that's how those two things fit together. So what Jan's referring to is this belief called miasma. Miasma is corrupted or toxic or poisonous air that would come from bad-smelling large things like swamps. You might associate it with like a rotting cattle carcass, but really large, like bad smells cause disease was in their mindset. And that's a theory that didn't die out until about 150 years ago. It's been an mm-hmm. ancient theory. Yeah. And it's, it seems like it's correct. Like if you eat a rotting, you know, piece of matter, that's going to make, make you sense. Bad. But yeah. it doesn't give you disease. It's not how diseases work. But they saw that the, the juxtaposition of the stars, the celestial event, coincided with the release of noxious fumes. They fuse those two kind of belief systems together. And on top of that, there's a crap load of earthquakes going on. Italy had a tremendous earthquake felt all around Europe in 1347. There's an earthquake in Germany in 1348 and one in York in England in 1348. So all of these earthquakes pop off and people are like, the earth opens up and poisonous gases come out. That's what happens. There's just, that's related. Plus earthquakes cause rat populations to go berserk too. Remember, these fleas didn't just bite rat, rats. It was any small mammals they could, they could go for. Um, hamps, or not hamsters, gerbils was another one. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you go 12, I think there were 12 cases of Yersinia pestis, Black Death in the U.S. in 2015. From small I remember 
reading that somewhere. Yeah, prairie dogs are like notoriously yeah. carriers. And uh, there was one guy who got infected. Uh, I think the most recent case in the U.S., if I'm not wrong, um, was a guy who got infected from his infected cat. Um, and like his cat was bit by a flea. Amazing wandering around and then he got sick from the cat and then uh i can't remember if he was a, like if he died or if he left but um, i want to be the doctor that's like you've got the plague i know actually i saw that on an episode of house like <laughs> it's a really fascinating episode but what i thought was interesting about like this whole the these theories was that like the king of france actually like got everybody together said like go find me the best minds right like at the university he set them yeah at the university of paris so like Mm -hmm. the most prestigious like place to study and is like bring me the best minds and they all got together and this was the prevailing absolutely this is what they came up with like the mars not not too favorite that are connected to the celestial and the alignment of these three planets so so and then the consenting voices were the ones who talked about the earthquakes um, and the volcanic activity. They saw the volcanic activity was the medium or immediate causes and the, the astrology was the long-term causes. So they kind yeah. of join those two. On top of that, you had the theory of the four humors, which for time's sake, I'm going to just rush over, but um, you can look it up. But the, the, keeping your humors in balance, we'll get into that next week because we're going to talk about um, bloodletting all that stuff. God was a huge combination. Uh, or yeah. a huge factor. He was punishing everyone for their sins, and that's why more. I mean, always, not always states, punishing that's everyone. Why he, I mean, yeah. Has nothing to do. Um, but God was blamed when that didn't suffice. People moved on to evil spirits or the devil. And don't forget and the Jews. The witches and the Jews would be the last one, or any sort of foreigners that would be attacked. So you almost have this cascading. And before we we assign blame, because it's easy to laugh at all this stuff. You know, I, I always think, what is the point? in our society, what is the per- exact percentage um, quote where before people go berserk? Yeah. And when, you know, to say that 50% of Europe died or actually studies start to show it's more like probably 60% yeah. of, of, of the human population died. Um, at what point, what, what that means is that some villages just disappeared off the map. Yeah. Some were spared. A lot suffered mortality rates that are a lot higher than 60%. So. Um, so yeah, just to go down the list, astrology, miasma, four humors, God, devil, witches. I realize they even blamed it on people with acne. I haven't heard that. I heard it. I just heard it as like, the young me would have been in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it makes complete sense because if you read the BBC yesterday or today, like the number one headline was the UN is warning that, um, Basically, xenophobia has gone nuts. Like skyrocketing. Um, yeah, yeah, like the Chinese disease. Yeah. And also Jews and Muslims are being persecuted. Like, we have not changed. If no. you look back a thousand years and go, these people are weird. No, nope, we same scapegoats. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, so what makes the Middle Ages interesting is that all of these theories, in some people's minds, they will attach on, I have a quote, we don't have time to read it, but... This gentleman attaches three or four of those theories in one long stream of conscience, saying it's somehow connected to God, miasma, volcanoes, and the stars, as they were trying to conceptualize why this is happening. 
Um, yeah. But by the end of it, a lot of people are just saying this is God. You know, as, as millions lay dead and the cities lay empty, it's it's got to be God. This can't be a natural event. Mm. Um, so, yeah. how do we know that this happened, Dan? Uh, are we just looking at tombstones? Was somebody writing down notes as their neighbors are dying? Like, yeah. how do we know that this actually? I'm going to be a conspiracy theorist. How do we know that this actually happened? <laughs> that actually happened. Well, funny enough, there's there's a lot of uh, maybe little historians who, you know, the record keeping isn't always great. And some people think we're off by a couple of years and, and you, mm-hmm. know, you have long periods of silence and you have to go into archaeology a lot more than you would in, in many other places. So what do we have? We have a lot of legal records. People go up mm-hmm. to sign wills very quickly as they see this is coming so we can see that. We have uh, papal um, or uh, clerical priest kind of records. So how many communion wafers are they giving out and that sort of things. Um, we have obviously property records, tax records that helps us identify burial pits and, and a few standout chroniclers who wrote down almost daily um, accounts of what it was going on and what, mm-hmm. what, what their process was. And if you want to watch, you know, if you want to uh, see a person's head explode in slow motion, you can read some of these accounts and it's, it's, it's mind-blowing just how, um, I don't know, how, how hard it is to process everyone going. And what I like about it is that the responses at the very beginning, so the written accounts, are hysterical, obviously, okay? Mm. It's pestilence, it's wreaking havoc, people going. And, and people in the Middle Ages would write with a lyrical flourish and exaggeration, humor, and blah, blah, blah. But by the, by the middle of the pandemic, people are writing things like, I'll give you a quote, all right? This is the Pope's vision, Guy de Chalrock. Chal- a father did not visit his son, nor the son his father. Charity was dead. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes from really expressive and freaking out to just lots of accounts of people saying all was lost. Just really <laughs> so wow. bad. Wow. And, and just, you know, how much your adrenal glands fire a lot and you just get exhausted. And I think all the chroniclers just calm down and just sober up halfway yeah. through. So. I also think, I mean, like, if you've watched the TV show Bones, then you know how much we can tell from looking at, like, you know, skeletons of the people who died digging out these mass graves. You can see, like, twisted, um, you know, bones. Like, we can tell, like, at what stage of, like, rigor mortis they were in, like, when they were buried. You can tell, like, a whole lot of things about how this disease would have been affected and you know at what point they would have stopped digging individual graves and started digging trenches and absolutely yeah so you have some of those kind of things that like you can look back on absolutely And, and the um the surveys of bone density have allowed us to understand just how widely the malnutrition was so the preceding famines and the bovine pestilence lowered everyone's um you know uh what am I thinking about? Lowered everyone's nutrition level. They were malnutrition uh-huh. or immunocompromised when the Black Death right. happened. It might not have wiped out as many had people had not been starving beforehand. Um, so yeah, but we have a, a healthy historical record, but a lot of it is having to piece together um, various facts and figures. And some. the thing with the Black Death is the more documents and data we have, the higher the mortality rate goes um, in these places. So it was generally assumed 30 to 40-ish percent uh, a lot of the more deep studies nowadays that are using a combination of biology and botany and every science you can think about to combine with the history to tell a story shows much more 50 to 60% mortality rate. Um, mm. so yeah, the more data, the, the more the deaths go up because we get more accurate readings. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm really excited to hear about reactions and the next episode, because I think that, um, I think that's where we start seeing like human nature and getting to explore. Absolutely. And that's the stuff that I think is really interesting for what we are um, looking at today. I mean, human nature is human nature. It's been around for a while. It's not going anywhere. So, um, true. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to learn from, you know, how humans reacted to this uh, disease and virus. Exactly. Yeah. We'll look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, because there's all sorts of reactions. And yeah, this week was just kind of a setup for that. And um, I can tell us um, about your charity. Plug some good news. Now that we've talked about 60% of us are gone. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Give Give us some hope. Yeah, so moving on from, um, you know, 50 out of 80 million Europeans dying to something else. So, um, yeah, if you liked what you heard here, I would ask you to just give a dollar or a couple dollars or a couple pounds, euros, florins, pieces of eight, whatever currency you have, uh, to a charity called Refugee Action. And um, as I said last time, if, you know, everyone's life has been made more complex and difficult, and but there's no one that's suffering more at this point, I believe, than refugees who've been displaced from war fan yeah. all the things we've talked about. So um, if you can give to refugee-action um, or just Google refugee action, you'll find them there, UK-based charity. And um, that's why we're doing this. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I, for one, cannot wait to hear about part two of Black Death, um, a statement that has not been said by many people. <laughs> <laughs> Black Death part two, can't wait. <laughs> Unless you're into history. And if you're into history, then this, all this stuff is like fascinating, which I am very much into history. So yeah. Thanks for coming on, Dan. And we're looking forward to the next time. Ladies, thanks for listening to me babble and to ride off your coattails and the strong wind you already have behind you. (laughs) Strong Um, wind. (laughs) I hope you have dreams tonight of fleas regurgitating into your pores. (laughs) I will. They bite you out of hunger furiously. Yeah, just angry fleas. I'm going to have that dream. I live for that. Do it. <laughs> All right. Catch you later. Thank guys. Bye, ladies. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of From Quarantine. We are live on all platforms, so you can find us on everything from the big guys like Apple Podcasts and Spotify to your favorite podcast apps. You can get updates on our episodes on Instagram, just search for From Quarantine, and you can find our full show notes on our website, quarantine.cz. We would love it if you would like and share our episodes with your friends, but if you could also take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would help us out tremendously. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by the coronavirus outbreak. Live together. Dialogue.